0: Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone
1: Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. and Koch tesman Senior Editor.
0: Well, it's our last pod of the year, and we have some juicy stuff for you today. And we'll also end the podcast talking about a few rays of light, more than a few rays of light, from the world of biotech amid the gloom of the public markets at the moment. We woke up to Biogen slashing the price of its Alzheimer's drug nearly in half, if not in half. We'll also check in with Simone on our conversation with FDA oncology chief, Rick Pazder, AKA the real Rick Pazder, who is calling on companies to cut the redundancy and collaborate in the checkpoint space and pharmas have begun to evolve in digital. Where are they now and what's next? Karen will update us after her interviews, poking around at what's happening in digital. And then we'll get to our rays of light. First up, Karen, you've been thinking about what Biogen is up to, obviously, They've been on a difficult path since they got accelerated approval of Adjuhelm back in June. And then just last week, we saw EMA's chimp rebuff the drug and say, no dice in Europe. So what's the latest?
2: Well, so, of course, we all know about the slashing of the agile home price in half. And Biogen also alluded to some cost-saving measures that seem to imply there might be some sort of restructuring, potentially layoffs happening. They did talk about that being offset by some investments in R&D and other strategies and said they'd reveal more about that in the months to come. So the questions I have are, where will those cost-cutting measures be felt within the organization? Will it be around the realm of commercial? And will it mean perhaps abandoning of the commercial effort on the Home front? Or might we see it show up in other areas? So that's one question I have. Another is what this means for the amyloid maps coming up behind for Lily and ASI, what it'll mean around their price setting and commercial strategies. Of course, as ICER took the stance that this drug would be cost effective at something like $2,500 to $8,300. So we're still nowhere near that. But uh, yeah, much to see unfold.
0: Yes, indeed. The uptake has been very slow. And of course, we have the big NCD decision coming in April on anti-amyloid that is the national coverage determination. Right.
1: Jasper, yeah. Thanks for <laughs> bailing me out. I couldn't. Yeah. I
0: couldn't remember <laughs> remember what it was. But that's really going to be important for what happens next.
1: But I think also it's really relevant what Karen's talking about with the next drugs because you know one of the criticisms of Aduhelm is frankly that people say it doesn't work so well. The data don't really bear up that well. So if the other drugs have better data, do they price higher? Do they price higher than Biogen's new knockdown price? What kind of bargain basement uh, are we in here? Or are we really in the Neiman Marcus sale going on?
0: (laughs) Excellent. Now, another set of therapies that have been in hot and heavy discussion lately are the PD-1s. And FDA's Richard Pazder, who is the top man in oncology at the agency, has come out several times now to speak his piece on the plethora of PD-1s, PD-1 pricing. Simone, you had the chance to sit down with Dr. Pazder, virtually at least, and discuss his latest call for companies to stop running in parallel lanes on PD-1s and work together. What were the takeaways of your conversation?
1: Thanks, Jeff. So let me just set the stage with the situation as it is with PD1s, because obviously, multiple fields, almost every field, has multiple compounds. And we think of that as a good thing. Competition can bring prices down. I think it did with PCSK9s. But there are currently globally 15 anti PD1s or anti PDL1 MABs approved, multiple antibodies approved, seven approved in the US. There are at least 38 in clinical development, and these are being tested in more than 2,000 clinical trials. And so Dr. Paz is not the only one to criticize this. Everybody's like, why do we need so many PD-1s? And the reason that so many companies are going after it is that it's pretty clear that PD-1s are going to become a cornerstone of combination strategies, and companies want to have their own. They don't want to have to license it from somebody. And he acknowledges that and he acknowledges that having multiple molecules in a class is important. But the problem is that these are almost identical compounds but they're not biosimilars. And what Dr. Pazda says is none of them are being tested to his knowledge in head-to-head trials. And this massive duplication of efforts is futile, doesn't serve patients, and the money would be better spent on innovative compounds. He says it's true that competition is good, but he wrote a perspective in the New England Journal of Medicine, and in that perspective, he actually made the point that competition in this case hasn't actually brought costs down. And what he said to me is like, you don't need 30 or 35 of these drugs on the market. So the question is kind of how much is enough?
2: Did any of what he said provide direction on what companies should be doing instead how they think about their clinical development strategies, their registrational strategies?
1: Yeah. Actually, one really important point is that what he's actually calling for is for companies to collaborate, right? He thinks that there should be a way for companies to collaborate, that these things should be in head-to-head trials. And I will say that he didn't exactly say what the vehicle should be, because why would any one company say, yeah, I'm gonna test mine against all of these others? He acknowledges that. So how that gets done is an open question. But he did have some advice, Karen, for companies. For example, he is really tired of single-arm trials, okay, for PD ones. He's like, we don't want to see any more of those because they're normally done for accelerated approvals. Those are normally done when there isn't an approved drug with a full approval in an indication. And he thinks actually that as more and more of the PD ones get a full approval for more and more indications, there'll be actually less justification for these. But he is telling sponsors, don't walk in with single-arm trials. What we really want to see is randomized controlled trials. And the other thing he talked about, because I think there's a lot of focus on China with this, and I do have a couple of comments about that, but... He made a very fair point that if you are only doing registrational trials in a single country, which could be China or could be any other country outside of the U.S., you are not representing what FDA has made a point that it wants to see the full diversity of the U.S. population represented in trials. And if you do it in those other countries they're betraying that commitment of theirs to see greater diversity in clinical trials. And he's like, how do I square that with our commitment? And that's a very fair point. But I think the thing to say about China is, China is behind a lot of this, but it's not only China and it's not only small biotechs. There are still farmers that are creating new standard PD-1 labs in development.
0: So Simone, any, any good news here?
1: Yes, there is. And I did also talk about this. And we have a big piece coming out this week, as you should know, Jeff, because it's landed in your inbox. True, <laughs>
0: so you may not have true.
1: I yes. just fixed
0: a uh a hyphen in there, in the word is, in the third this is,
1: paragraph. This is what happens when you you know, I'm in the UK right now, and when you have a time difference between the UK and California, I can lob things over to you and as you know if you've opened your email we have a big data story out on pd1 and i think the real story here is that the untold part of the equation is the massive amount of the innovation going on so there's something like more than 90 compounds that are targeting pd1 or pdl1 and only about under half of those are mAbs, and within the other more than half there's a huge amount of innovation there's different by specific structures there's different kind of antibody conjugates there's an siRNA there's a bunch of activity going on and we don't see the same kind of replication as we did in the traditional mAbs so there's a lot of differentiation and i think within a small amount of time actually that some of these will come to market others of them are a bit earlier in development but i think in the end they may end up just displacing the monoclonal antibodies at least you know some of the 38 of them
0: Excellent. Well, let's turn to pharma digital now. Pharma's have been struggling with how to embrace, define, and deploy digital technology. Karen finds them settling in on models that ingrain digital leadership in the C-suite and teams across the organization. Karen, what else did you learn?
2: Well, this was a nice opportunity to check in with leaders of digital organizations at pharmas. A couple of years ago in 2019, we checked in on how many pharmas have digital leadership in the C-suite, checking in on that. We saw it grow from a little under half to three quarters of pharmas having some kind of representation of a chief digital, chief information officer. Sitting down to talk to some of these people, what really came to the forefront was that pharmas are looking at digital from the lens of data science, about how they can improve and in some cases expand the range of what they're doing already within their R&D, within commercial, within manufacturing, within clinical development. So the focus is less around creating new digital therapeutics or digital biomarkers at this point in-house and more around creating data science Infrastructure that is then embedded throughout the different parts of pharma businesses and really accelerating what they're doing. One of the big themes that I came across was that in the not so distant past, you were looking at data, but you were looking at things like prescription data from a previous time or or even just yesterday's data, and that now there's increasingly improvements in terms of sensing and real-time data delivery so that you can make decisions based on how things stand in the present moment today. And this spans from things like supply chains and where to send your medicines and how much to make to your clinical trial picture across the world. That was pretty interesting.
1: So, Karen, the impression I get, I mean, you know, digital has become this big buzzword, of course, and everybody defines it the way they like, but it really seems like among farmers, at least. Two things is what I got from your story. One is that they are congregating around the idea that digital, insofar as they're using it, is really data science. It's different versions and different manipulations of data science. And the other, Karen, is that they are looking at digital or data science insofar as how it can improve the way they make drugs and who they make them for rather than digital drugs. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I think so. One of the things that really came up was when companies get serious about digital, a big part of what that means is getting basically all of their data under one roof in a place where it is usable and interoperable. And you can even maybe have your modeling, analytical tools living in one space. So creating these infrastructures that people in companies can tap into and easily access the data they need was really important. I heard something like, the best way to lose a data scientist is to make them go hunting for data. And the talent aspect of this was actually very important. Obviously, talent wars in drug development in general are very tight, but around this aspect, you're competing with tech. It's a very specialized skill set also to be bilingual in both the data science side and the drug development side. Increasingly, you're seeing people with training that reflects both languages, but a lot of times that is a capability developed in-house and you have to invest in that.
1: I think the talent thing is really interesting and really key and we'll continue to keep an eye on that.
2: For sure. And one of the things that actually stood out for me was a comment from Najat Khan at Jensen talking about how diversity and talent is really important and that it doesn't happen by accident. You have to really Cultivate it, And that in this area in particular, where you might be building models that reflect certain assumptions, having a diverse team on the ground as you do that is an important check against baking in biases.
0: Excellent. Well, that story is up on our website, biocentury.com. So be sure to check it out. All right. It's gotten a bit gloomy, at least in the public markets, the XBI. Key index to follow that captures uh, smaller to mid sized biotechs down about 19% year to date. The NASDAQ biotech index is treading water. It's up a hair. The BTK is about 3% down. And the Long Car China ETF down 11% after hitting. A three-year high in the spring. We obviously have had the Biogen setback and the Twitterati just seem a little down in the dumps. Simone, how are you feeling as you enjoy the end of the year Uh, with your family out in uh, jolly old, jolly old
1: uh, the UK? Well, you call it jolly old, jolly old, but it feels a little bit like Omicron Central here.
0: Mm.
1: Um, You know, every day you're kind of waiting as Boris, you know, going to clamp down and ruin granny's Christmas and so on? Or is it the people just complaining about nightclubs being closed after 10.30 PM or something? Yeah, let's be clear. Nobody wanted to end the year like this. Nobody wanted to end the year in the coronavirus like this. Stocks are down in biotech and it's been a jittery month, I think, globally. Maybe biotech's doing a little bit worse. I mean, it's been a good ride for a long while. So Maybe we expected something like this. I believe that private investment venture money is still flowing in. We've got new companies being created all the time, and these are new and innovative and exciting companies. I think it's not all gloom and doom. I think it is hard from the depths of Omicron to look to rosier days, but I think that there are some you know, glimmers of light. Karen can talk about some of the technical ones that are lining up, and I I think we should remember that we do have a vaccine, several vaccines. These are due to biopharma companies that have really on the global stage demonstrated the value and importance of innovation. I hope we're going to see more of that. We now know how important small molecules are going to be. We've seen one look really good. And I think the picture would be very different today if we could be handing out small molecules like we're handing out or the NHS is handing out antigen tests or what they call here lateral flow tests.
0: Karen, Simone said you'd tip us off to what's happening in
2: tech. Well. Coming out of ASH in particular, it does seem like there's some good news to be found among the bispecifics. My colleague Lauren Marx has covered this. Highlights include compounds against BCMA from j and Regeneron, and also a CD20, CD3 bispecific from Genentech. One thing I've been tracking is the emergence of gamma-delta T-cells. This was an area that we first wrote about a couple of years ago as some key translational data suggested it would be an important cell type for cancer and companies started being formed. And now we're at this place where we're starting to see some clinical data emerge that is promising some from Adiset and also from Innate Bio, And uh, Innate is in particular getting at this question of durability. It was in just three patients, but it seemed like they had some pretty durable responses. And durability has been this issue that has been hounding TCR and TIL and allogeneic programs. There's companies with data have been getting hammered on that piece in particular. So perhaps that is a glimmer of hope in the cancer space. And then one thing I'm always really excited about is the growing momentum in targeted protein degradation. So far, Arvinas has some Early clinical proof of concept chimeras in healthy volunteers at this point for their autoimmune program, but there's mechanistic proof of concept that these degraders are behaving the way we would expect them to. And behind that is this whole swarm of companies with different targeted degraded programs, many within the E3 ubiquitin ligase system and others outside of it looking into autophagy or lysosomal degradation. And we're also seeing renewed energy around um, molecular glues, which is a different form of targeted degrader rather than the sort of dumbbell shape of the protac where you've got two ligands linked by a linker. You've got a molecule that captures both of your targets in more of a monovalent way. And that is something where we're seeing Chimera has talked about some emerging programs in that area. That's something I'll be looking out for in the next year.
0: Simone has referenced uh, the flow of venture money as being a bright spot this year. That is super evident in China. For example, Abogin mRNA company has raised more than a billion in venture money this year. I hadn't heard of this company a year ago, but we've talked a lot about the hot China companies, super strong market has developed, in Hong Kong for Chinese biopharmas. Shanghai Star Exchange attracted Beijing. That's a pretty big get for the star. But I'd like to just give a shout out to Europe. It's really been a good year, good good month for Europe. If you look just last week, we had approvals in the US for two European companies. We saw Argenix get Approval of a potential blockbuster, a first-in-class therapy.
1: Oh, Jeff, that's for myasthenia gravis, and I'm particularly pleased to see that because the other half of the lab where I did my PhD worked on that, and it's really quite a devastating illness. So yes. there you go, my, myasthenia gravis.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I do get a little tongue-tied, so it's always good to have uh, you and Karen and Paul to, uh, to bail me out. The other approval came from a company out of Sweden, Caladidas. We also saw the first Italian biotech to list on NASDAQ last week during a turbulent market, that's Genenta. And earlier this year, we saw massive VC funds out of Sofanova Partners. I believe it was like their 10th and largest ever VC fund, LSP. Had its largest ever fund. JATO out of Paris had a very large fund. And of course, just last week, we saw Omega Funds bring home $650 million for its new fund. And we spoke with Otello Stampaccia, and he told us that look for them to do more on the company creation side of things. You can find that story on biocentry.com. So hats off, Europe. Simone, want to take us home here? Final thought on the year?
1: We're back where we didn't want to be, Jeff. The industry is back where it didn't want to be, having been the hero of the moment. Now has to get back to the drawing board. But that is what industry has to do for the virus, which is to pick itself up and dust itself off and get back to work and create the next vaccines and the next drugs and prepare for the next pandemic. And that is the reality of where we're at. A lot of people have it a lot worse than we do. So we just have to look and not only hope, but actually work towards a better 2022.
0: Well said. I think we'll leave it there. We'll be back the week of JP Morgan. That is, I believe, January 10th. And we will get back to doing what we love, just talking biotech, biopharma, innovation, what's new. That's all we have time for. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. They've just completed their holiday harmonies, uh, winter concert. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. I hope everyone has a very restful end of the year uh, on the couch with a good book, good movie. Don't forget to watch Die Hard, the classic holiday film, Uh, that's Die Hard 1. And have a very happy new year. We will see you in 2022.